as a filmmaker, you know, for me, when I come down to make anything, whether it's a book or a movie or a show, it's really narcissistic in terms of what do I want to see? What do I want to hear? What do I want to feel? And I, and I create everything from that space. So it's pretty selfish, but like, but, but really, you know, fun in, in, in the sense that like, if I walked into this theater, movie theater, show, whatever, and the curtain opened, what would I want to see? Then that's what I'm going to create. Where do you start when it comes to creating something? Do you start with a need? Is it your job? Or do you create something simply because it's something that you want to see in the world? We tackle those questions and so much more this week on The Story Podcast. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing? What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. During some recent time in sunny Southern California, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Jason Russell. Usually I just say I make movies because then people, I think I say that to get them to be like, oh, what kind of movies? You know, <laughs> that's probably where it comes from. But, but I'd probably just say like a I'm a storyteller because I think that that's the core of what it is. Like if you're making movies, yeah. you're telling stories. So yeah, I usually say I make movies and then they're like, oh, any in the theater I've seen? And like, no, other kind of movies. And Probably then, on the internet. You yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe on the internet. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Joseph Coney? <laughs> Some of you will know who Jason is. His name was catapulted into our living rooms in 2012 during a grassroots campaign through the organization that he founded, Invisible Children. But he's done so much more than just that. He really is the epitome of a storyteller. And I was excited to learn how he got to where he is today. When did you realize you were a storyteller? Was what? there like an aha moment where you're like, oh, I like, obviously you have a background in theater. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that we're school. like, when my assistant set up this interview, I was like, why are we doing it at my parents' theater company. <laughs> and, she's, and she told me last night, because there's like a sound studio in there, I was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> but it's so, it's kind of um, poignant in that, like this is where I grew up. So yeah. my entire like upbringing, my entire childhood, the background was musical theater. And, and there really was no choice in the matter. So we're like literally in a large headquarter office of Christian Youth Theater, which, you know, CYT is what it's known as. And it has like over 50 locations across the nation. It's the largest children's musical theater organization in the world. Wow. Um, inspired by my dad and mom's vision to kind of claim the arts for Christ. Like basically say like, you know, let's teach kids how to tell stories well, make it quality, 
And hopefully when they, like, grow up, they can impact the world, you know, by telling powerful redemptive stories. So that was my upbringing. That's, like, you know, I always say, like, by 12 years old, I had about 10,000 hours of musical theater. And, like, for, for our family's vacation, we would go to Broadway, and we would see 10 shows in eight days. Wow. So, you know, by the time I was in my 20s, I'd seen hundreds of Broadway shows. And that was my first love. And I don't think there's any experience more intimate and beautiful and um, just connected than a live theater performance that's done well. I think a lot of people get confused because there's a lot of bad theater out there. But if you get the good theater, it's unlike anything you've ever had. And um, that's my first love. So, But I knew that if I stuck in that industry and like pursued Broadway um, directing, that it, your story is limited to about 800 people a night. So I had to realize, like, I got to go bigger than that. For, maybe it's the achiever in me. <laughs> I want millions of people, <laughs> you know. I got a story to tell. So. Yeah. It's funny. I was just listening to something this morning and, and – uh, and made me look up the stat, and the stat was like, I think Broadway had nine hundred and ninety something million dollars spent on tickets last year. It was like just under a billion dollars mm -hmm. um, for Broadway shows. And then I was like, so how does that compare to film? And it was like four hundred billion or something. Yeah, like that. it was like monstrous in comparison. Totally, it, I got a little sad when I read that stat. Um, it wasn't unexpected. I think I just didn't expect it to be that dwarfed. Yeah, um, it's interesting. This That statistic is true, but what most people don't know is that if you have a Broadway hit, and by hit, I mean like Phantom of the Opera, Wicked, Hamilton, those will go on in their lifetime to gross way more than Avatar ever grossed. Hmm. It's a compounding it's it has effect. Because such a longer shelf life. Well, tickets are so much more expensive, and then they, it runs for 30 years on Broadway. You know, like yeah. Chicago's still running. So they're raking in, in its life time four or five billion dollars isn't that wow. interesting so That's super interesting if you have a huge hit you're set you know <laughs> I get, because your chance at avatar is that month it comes out yeah and then it's like dvd sales or yeah, streaming done. but yeah. like yeah so what is it you think about the theater is it that that live transcendent experience by getting a group of people in the room and them sharing this communal yeah it's just hearing it's, of a story it's there's nothing like that alive experience you're breathing the air that this character is breathing at the same time but also something could go wrong or there are nuances that are different than they were the night before and you know the energy that the audience has is what gives like the oxygen to the performers as well so there's this like this choreography or like energy exchange happening and um like I saw Dear Evan Hansen this year um, before it won the Tony and became a thing because my parents saw it right the month it came out. I said, you have to go. And so we managed to get tickets. And from the beginning to the end, my wife and I were crying, like sobbing, like, <gasps> like crazy because it's about bullying. It's about like the internet being a monster. It's about nonprofits. It's about identity and the way the music and the performance happens it's there, there's no movie you go to that's like that there's just not and when you're sobbing with a bunch of people yeah <laughs> you know on broadway and you you leave the theater actually changed like truly changed 
Um, and that's happened a dozen times to me where my brother will call me. He saw August Osage County, um, which is like this three-hour drama. It's not a musical, but it is so powerful. It's like the East of Eden of Broadway shows. It's like so intense and great. Meryl Streep's in the movie with Julia Roberts and everything, but the but the show I think is better than the movie. And he called me, he said, and my brother doesn't call me all the time, so when he calls it, you know, really pick up, and he's just bawling, and he's like, it's so good, it was so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because, yeah, Broadway's expensive, so it really only brings in people who have the ability to buy that kind of ticket. But do it. Save up and go see what everyone's talking about and have that life change. Um, it's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't sit through a, even a an average musical or production <laughs> without bawling my eyes out. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah it's. Uh, I thought you were going to say, I can't even stand yeah. them. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Love them. Okay, yeah, cool. absolutely. I mean, I grew up with a background in performance. And so okay. just being on stage, my parents always stuck me in every school or Christmas or church theater production possible you know right on. um and i i it's interesting because i never i never felt free to take on another character that wasn't myself i think that's why i ended up becoming an entertainer because i just wanted to be me on stage yeah. you know which is i don't know why i've never dug into that it makes me want to kind of dig in and figure out why that was exactly Jason's an interesting case because to hear him tell it, he doesn't really care for acting per se. That is, he doesn't like to pretend to be someone else. He likes to be on stage, but he likes to be on stage as himself. I've always felt the same way, so I can totally relate. Being himself just comes naturally to him. He's good at it. Not everyone always is, but that's a big part of what theater teaches you, isn't it? All that acting, playing, pretending, it ends up revealing who you really are. When you trace back like who I am today at 39 years old, like so much of it is because of what I learned of at, at my parents' theater company because you learn about discipline. You learn about the show must go on. You learn what character looks like on stage and off. And, you know, there's a, there's a weight or responsibility with like, owning your role and like having all of these additional things you have to take care of and make sure are in place from props to your microphone to doing your back handspring to the flying rig you know there's like so many elements that have to work and be and be completely in sync for the show to be perfect you know and so doing that over and over and over in my childhood just set me up to go you know to film school, you know, it set me up to lead an organization where there's so many moving parts and we have a bill passing through Congress. We have another video that's going to come out. We're doing a new t-shirt line and handbag line. And, you know, I just felt like that's where I was at my best when I had 16 pots on the stove and I was like, okay, a little more salt here. Turn this one up. This (laughs) one's not working. Take it off. Like, um, I think that my theatrical background, uh, gave me that insight and that understanding it's really hard to put on a show like it it might look easy when you're watching it but it is insane to get everything synced up and ready to roll and on top of it you have to make sure the most important thing is you have to make sure that the audience feels something the best shows in the world they make you laugh and they make you cry for real and the best ones make you 
laugh through tears. Like yeah. that's the greatest is when, when you have that combination. And so, yeah, it teaches you a lot about audience as well because if a joke doesn't work, it has to be changed. If the kiss doesn't look real, you got to make it look real, you know? So there's like all these elements in terms of like listening to the audience and being in the audience yourself and not letting anyone know you're the director, but you're like listening to what they're talking about. You're like actually navigating that. And I think for, as a filmmaker, you know, for me, when I come down to make anything, whether it's a book or a movie or a show, it's really uh, narcissistic in terms of, what do I want to see? What do I want to hear? What do I want to feel? And I, and I create everything from that space. So it's pretty selfish, but like fun in, in, in the sense that like if I walked into this theater, movie theater, show, whatever, and the curtain opened, what would I want to see? Then that's what I'm going to create. So Coney 2012 was only about like, what kind of video would I want to watch if I clicked? Like, what would I want to see? And that's where... It, me and my team kind of was yeah. through that lens, yeah. So the your best work has come from a narcissistic place yeah. simply because you're creating what you want to experience. Yeah. But then it ends up being a gift to the world, so it's not completely selfish. But I think that's true for any artist. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, like, Andy Warhol was, and I'm not saying I'm Andy Warhol, I'm just <laughs> saying, like, I think that you're like, Andy Warhol, what, what, what did you give to the world? It's what he wanted, you know? He was the most sophisticated artist of you know, the 20th century, like he, he was a philosopher and he was showing us how he, how he saw the world. You know, you could say that about Steve Jobs, you know, he's like that, that classic line. And I'm paraphrasing of him being like, don't test the audience. They don't know. If you ask like people a hundred years ago, what do you, what do you want? They'd say a faster horse in a buggy. They're not even imagining a machine that drives a hundred miles per hour. It doesn't exist. After 5,000 years of horsey and buggy, now you have a car, you know? So I, I like that. I, I think that it sounds egotistical, but I think there's a lot of truth to that because Steve Jobs was designing the phone that he wanted to have in his pocket. It was like selfish. I want a beautiful phone that's simple and works and that we're like addicted to because it's so gorgeous and it brings us all closer together. Um and so as any artist or storyteller, I, I always am like, what story do you want to tell? What movie do you want to watch? Go make that one. Yeah. Because no one else has made it, I promise you. Yeah. Yeah. So you left children's theater and went to film school? I went to film school. Um, did they teach you in film school how to approach digital platforms like YouTube? No, because I went to film school in... 2000, 2001, 2002. So I was there before the birth of the internet, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got there and my first week I got an email and I, I wrote my friend and she said, welcome to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I was, I was hooked. I was hooked. I, you know, that was, those are the days when you, you counted down like the minutes till you could get back to your email because yeah. maybe somebody wrote maybe you. somebody wrote you yeah so you get and that you, hip, hit of dopamine even exactly. though we didn't know all the studies and you get in and like oh my gosh four <laughs> people wrote me back and they're these like beautiful like novels paragraphs and you're like I'm gonna just spend an hour and write them back you oh, know dude, AOL was genius the whole you've got mail thing like totally. to be able to log on and hear that I mean imagine what that was doing to our brains I know yeah it's like yeah. you've got mail yes I'm loved someone likes me it's so funny yeah. so like. It wasn't until 2005 I went into our, what we called like the crack apartment because we were renting like a $600 
two bedroom to edit the videos of Invisible Children. And we hired our first editor, Mariana Blanco, who's like amazing. And she was on this site and I walked in morning. I said, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm watching uh, videos on this thing called YouTube. I'm like, what is it? And she's like, oh, anyone can upload a video and you can just upload videos and watch them. And I'm like, well, that'll never last. <laughs> like, that's what I thought. Really? Like, yeah. I was like, well, that's stupid. Why do you just want to sit around watching other people's videos? <laughs> <laughs> and I consider myself somewhat of a futurist. So, like, yeah. that was just, I don't know. I, I, maybe I didn't have enough coffee, but I was just like, whatever. That seems like a waste yeah. of time. Yeah. But um, So, at what when you set out to make Coney 2012, was it a, we're going to make this for YouTube? Or was it, there's a story here that has to be told. We don't know where it's going to end up yet. It was made out of just me being super pissed off that I was still telling the same story. Because Coney 2012 was, I think, our 11th film, 11th. And, and, and Invisible Children, in terms of just the, like, practicality, we started with DVDs. Like, you know, that's how far, you know, we started with DVDs because streaming wasn't a real thing. So we used to take DVDs and put posters up in in dorms, of uh, freshman dorms in universities, and we'd put take it, watch it, return it, three different DVDs for free, just like we just want the story out. And that was our whole operating system. Like if you can't afford the 20 bucks for the DVD, like here, just have it. We literally don't care. Just like take the story, share it with someone. That's even better than $20. And we always packaged every DVD with an additional one so that they could give it to someone else. Was it working? Totally, because we really? would, we had numbers on them and they could like actually log where the DVD was going. So you could actually watch a DVD go from one place to the next. And I think that was empowering to someone because you watch a movie and you, you get emotional and cry and you want to do something. And we tell them, we'll share the story. That's the easiest thing you can do. And so in a way, I think in 2005 and six and seven, those DVDs were being passed around to hundreds of thousands of people. You know, this was before videos went viral, you know, and we had never in all our years thought, let's intentionally put out one of our movies online aggressively until we created Coney 2012. And, and when we were creating it, all of us had complete doubt that it wasn't going to work. Because, I mean, Ben Casey would walk in, the CEO, and he'd be like, who is going to watch a 30-minute documentary about child soldiers in Africa on YouTube. That is just not a thing. And it's really not. It never has been. And I don't know if it'll be again, but we were just like, well, and they put in the goals in the pamphlet. It said 500,000 views for the year of 2012. Wow. And, and I read it because I, I think I was gone or something. They printed it without me. I said, 500,000 views, it's not even worth it. Can we at least put 3 million? I was kind of pissed, but... Um, the achiever. <laughs> well, and some people don't know the story, so fill them in on exactly what happened. Yeah, so we were just, it was a... You upload the video. We, the, Coney 2012, I think, really derived from the idea that we tried to get a bill passed through Congress, which was to have the United States government um, basically, that it mandated for the United States government to create a plan to help remove Joseph Coney from the battlefield. So the idea, and, and they could figure out how to do that, but the bill passed miraculously and Obama signed it and we were in the office with him when he signed the bill into law. But my skeptical mind with government, I was like, they're still not going to do it. Like just because it's law doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. 
And then on my birthday, 2011, they announced troops are going, first time in United States history, where troops are going somewhere in the world that has nothing to do with United States security, but they're going to embed themselves with the Ugandan military and the African Union to remove Joseph Kony from the battlefield. Not because it's in United States interest, but because it's right and because the people of America demanded it. Wow. And we were like, what? <laughs> like, reading the news was like Black, you know, Black Mirror. Like, wait, we helped bring this to pass? And then Obama and his team actually did, okay. So we were like, our job's done. But then we felt like, but if the pressure's not kept on, then the troops will be pulled away, you know, and the mission could could go south. So that's where Conan 2012 came out of. It's like, let's keep the pressure on and make sure more people know about what's happening and try to tell this 30-year war as succinctly as possible. Because we could have done a Ken Burns, you know, 13-hour long epic colonization, all the tribal conflicts, neo-colonization, white savior. Like, there's so much things we could have gone into, but we're like, let's just make it short for the internet and short for the internet is like two minutes but we made it 30 yeah yeah and it worked and people watched it the finishing rates were like astonishing youtube contacted us and they said like 70 percent of the people who start the movie watch it to the very end that's crazy yeah and so tell people the numbers so the original goal again was five hundred thousand views for the year we received that in about 12 hours and then um within 24 hours we were at a million and then um, from that point on, it ended up being about a million every hour. It just kept, like, escalating. Um, I don't know the exact, but it was around 30 to 40 million day four or five, around there. So it was just exponential growth, um, compounded by the fact that the New York Times put it on the cover of the New York Times in that USA Today. I mean, it felt to me that everyone was talking about it at all times for at least 10 days, um, including every blogger and YouTube commenter, blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't just like the news, traditional news media. It was Time Magazine cover, um, Joseph Coney's face, you know, hashtag Coney 2012. And it, so to see a video go out, which we didn't think would work, and then eight days later to see a Time Magazine cover with Coney on the front after 30 years of impunity was mind-boggling. Be- I mean, because we're a little tiny San Diego nonprofit in terms of, like, numbers. Like, we have 100 people plus working there volunteering. And, you know, our budgets are, you know, we had millions of, of dollars. But for our media, we had a couple hundred thousand to spend on, on media. N- we're not pepsi or like warner brothers or like netflix you know what i'm saying (laughs) sure and so that's what was mind-boggling is like how could this little organization be being so committed and singular in its goal achieve such spectacular kind of numbers and growth And, and that was weird for me if i'm being honest that like when i went on all the news organizations there was something behind their eyes like who are you and how did you do this because like they're all driven by numbers, right? Like all, it's all about who's watching. And our numbers were so hyper compared to their half a million viewers or 3 million viewers that they were just like, 
I don't want to say jealous, but they were just like, how did you pull this off? Like, what kind of magic trick did you do to make it happen? Yeah. And that's why people thought we were the Illuminati, <laughs> which we might be. <laughs> Who can say? We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. I think only we'll, Jay-Z knows. <laughs> <laughs> I think they wanted to, uh, they wanted to know what the process was or what the secret was or the formula yeah. and as and I'm seeing this a lot right now I've been venting a lot about it sometimes even publicly about I don't know if this is just the result of you know American culture being built on capitalism and yeah. like how do we take something that's working and find a way to make profit off of it yeah but there tends to be this like oh wow stories are going viral now and that's got to be a thing so what's the science behind it because if we can if we can whittle it down to a science or a formula, well, then we could sell that formula and teach other people how to do it. And I don't know that storytelling is always a science. Sometimes I think it's an art form. Yeah. And so I think that is a classic example of that. It was, you were making art um, and telling a story. It wasn't just, here's our roadmap and our formula, and we got to get this shot and plug that in here. And but see, uh, did I you love like read that. Save the Cat I, I and love go, that. Oh, I read Save the Cat. Yeah. Let's go make County 2012. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I, I love how you said that because the beauty of it is that there is no formula. And yet there is. We know it. We've all mm -hmm. studied it, you mm -hmm. know, beginning to end, you know. It's, but it doesn't always work. And a classic example to me is Steven Spielberg came to our class at USC, and it was right when AI came out. And it didn't do well, like, critically. It was kind of mixed. And then box office was kind of a miss. And the first thing he said was, I'm sorry. Hmm. I'm sorry you didn't like it, you know? Like, I tried. And it was a, the stakes were high because it was him and Kubrick, you know, and Kubrick had died. And they had those secret fax machines in each other's <laughs> closet that they were going, <laughs> passing the script just between the two of them. It's insane. So it was like so, we were like, oh my gosh, Kubrick and Spielberg was, <laughs> and then the movie kind of fell flat. And I, I agree, I, I'm not a fan. And for him to be Steven Spielberg and apologize was major for me because I'm like, this is one of the best master storytellers of our time, Amistad and Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. And the list goes on. And he still is like, I didn't nail it. You know, like if it doesn't connect with your audience, like that's a major problem. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's what's so exciting about being a storyteller is because you don't know where it's going to take you. And a lot of times you're going to fall flat and it might suck. And that's okay, too. You know, like, welcome to the club. This talk that Spielberg gave had a pretty profound influence on Jason, and it was part of what taught him to embrace his most counterintuitive instincts. He says that going the opposite direction of whatever you're most excited about is going to make for a more compelling journey. Sound a little weird? Yeah, maybe. But when you have something as huge and era-defining as Coney 2012, you're forced to rethink a lot of what used to be common sense. So how did you then come out of Coney 2012? Because I, I can only imagine how much you learned through that entire process. And then you experienced all the success as an organization and as a filmmaker. And then following that, how did you fight against the temptation to go, okay, now that we learned what worked, let's just go do that. And, had you, and maybe there yeah. was some balance there. Maybe there was a little bit of like, okay, we're learning what's working, what's resonating with people. Let's capitalize on that momentum so the stories go even further while also continuing to innovate and do something new and fresh. Yeah, I mean, 
We made a movie right after Coney 2012, like eight months after. And it was the same like length of time and we had the same team and we were just like, this will still do well. Like it's still going to get a few million views, you know, because it's literally the, I mean, we made Coney 2012, then immediately the CEO and the filmmakers made Coney 2012 to explain everything, which is more informational than it is entertaining. And that did fair, that did a couple million views. And then we made a movie called Move, which was about getting people who really want to do something still to like activate. And it's not over, it's still 2012. And that did so poorly. Like, I, I think maybe a couple hundred thousand views, which is still a lot, but I'm saying compared yeah. to what we had just came from. So we realized pretty quickly, like, oh, that was an actual moment, flash in the pan, never to be replicated or duplicated. Yeah, but I, I've never I've never feared about it being like a one-hit wonder for me. I, I have so many ideas that I'm so excited to keep doing and going after. Um, so I don't think they'll look like Coney 2012. I think that was just a unique time um, for our organization and for the world to kind of wake up. Because honestly, like what strikes me to be so powerful is like day seven – my wife and kids and I, we went to Palm Springs for two days so that I could try to mellow out, which it didn't really work because I was, you know, having like a manic episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it was a real problem, yeah. but of course I wasn't aware of it because when it's happening to you, you don't um, you don't know. But I remember sitting in the jacuzzi at this like hotel and this mom, like just, I was telling her my story and she had seen the video and she like was getting teary-eyed and she said, I didn't know. Like, I just, I didn't know. Like, none of us knew that it was this bad, that it was like, this was really happening. And for me, that happening 120 million times, I'm assuming a lot of those people didn't know that these kids were forced to do this and that there was no real plan to stop it. Um... So there's an awakening, you know? And and to this day, people come up to me and say, I remember when I saw that. I remember very vividly when I watched it and how I felt. And that's like my reward and trophy for me is like I got to be a part of like people waking up to injustice and waking up to their potential to be a part of healing and helping and doing. Um, I forgot what we were talking about, but just that no, I'm just idea. curious, how do you... How do you then push back against that temptation? Do you ever feel that temptation to be like, guys, like nothing we're doing now is getting 12 million views in a short period of time. So let's go back and figure out what the science was behind that. And you know, now you're, you have to like preach at yourself the same thing that all these other totally. massive companies were like, how did you do this? Do you fight the temptation of going, how did we do that? Let's figure it out so we can do it again. Or are well, you very comfortable with that idea of that was a, that was a thing that, took place in that time and space yeah i'm i'm more in the second camp i'm more in just like coney 2012 took us about four to five months to make but it was 10 years in the making you know it we we had made uh, 10 movies before that that prepared us for the coney 2012 moment and i knew um if we were going to make it that it had to be i may mean, told the team this has to be the best thing we've ever made and they looked at me like after the rough cut, after the rescue, after Tony, there were some great yeah. pieces we had made that we had poured everything into. And we're like, no, this is it. So 
as a three and as achiever, I still want to do things that are successful and viewed and excite people and inspire people and get people to do more. So like that has, that's not lost on me, but like, you know, I left working at Invisible Children in 2014. So, and when you leave a nonprofit, it doesn't come as a surprise. You don't leave with anything. <laughs> like <laughs> You still have all your stock options. And <laughs> exactly. I mean, I we literally after 12 years of working there, you know, it, we had no money. That's why everyone's leaving. So it was like, you got a month and a half to figure out what you're going to do next. No backup plan. I wasn't allowed to like even bring a camera because they were scared that if reporters investigated that Jason had left with a camera, that's a breach of blah, 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 nonprofit, whatever. So I'm like, okay, I don't have a camera. I'm leaving. I got a month and a half to figure it out. And so the last three years has been like incredibly painful because I didn't think at, you know, 37, I had to start all over. You know, it's me and my wife and my kids. And it's like, okay. And then I got Chad, who you met, and I got um, a girl named Spencer, a girl named Kara. So we're like rebuilding. And in a way, it's so hard, like painfully hard, but I'm relearning a lot how to like, you know, rebuild again, but this time with more intention instead of just who's ever available and around, come on in. But we have big we have big ideas and big dreams and plans that we believe can quote unquote change the world. Yeah. I, I still as cliche as that is, it excites me. Yeah. And I, I truly believe that nothing changes the world like story. It is truly the only thing that changes the world. And once you click into the fact that every single thing is a story. And, and when you when you get into that almost like avatar video game, like we're in a virtual reality, it feels real, it feels very real, but um, anything you touch, anything you see has an actual story, an origin story. And you can date it back 14 billion years or 175,000 years since our species like began. But like that, that's what drives me is that however this thing was created by something more intelligent than us, or if we're in like the matrix, the game we're in is allowing us to play with it. And that's the magic of the creation. Like that's the existential awakening. Like, wait, we get to play with this reality? Like, yeah. wow. And I, and some some days I believe everything's faded and, and predestined and like just enjoy the roller coaster because you're on it. And then some days I feel like we are doing this divine dance with something much, much, much bigger and more loving than us. And that's why I tattooed Tim Chill to my wrist because I was like, thou mayest free will, I'm into it. But the last few years I've been like, well, it's probably predestined. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, do you, do you feel like that's a chapter that's closed? Like we got the bill passed, Coney was that issue was resolved. And so yeah. like I did the work that I was supposed to do through Invisible Children and like, sure, there's always going to be crisis um, in the world that you know, takes on varying forms, but we knocked out that problem. Is that how you feel? No, no, I don't. I, there's a line in The Princess Bride where they're at the top of the hill and she doesn't realize that it's him behind the mask, her love. And he's asking her, why didn't you wait for him? 
And she said, I died that day. Like she died to herself, you know, Princess Buttercup. And it felt like that. That's the only way I can describe it. Like leaving Invisible Children, I died. To my, I died so hard. I mean, it's been years now, but I'm still mourning the fact that there are still children being abducted. There are still millions of people affected by this small rebel group. And the thing that's heartbreaking to me is like, we know. We now know. So now we know about the injustice and we're still like, uh, these things take time, you know? And the chasm of the injustice is so extreme to me because I know that if any white child in America was kidnapped from their home, given a gun, and taught to kill their parents and the community. I mean, give me a break. And so to me, knowing the children that I know and love and the community I know in in Gulu and Acholi land and beyond, they're family and friends. So it's like, I can't reconcile that. And I have to just sit in the space of like, my job from what I was able to do as a storyteller, that is done and I'm able to let go of it. But I'm not okay with the truth that we, with all of our sophistication, intelligence, drones, we're creating AI, we're going to Mars, and you're telling me you can't find one man? Really? Really? (laughs) Why? What's the priority here, you know? And so I think my my mission's very earthbound in terms of being obsessed with figuring out how to bring peace to the world because I think if we if we can get closer to that, we're going to be doing some amazing things. If 40% of our tax dollars doesn't go to bombs and guns and blah, 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 like we're on a tiny, tiny rock floating through the infinite vortex of space and time. <laughs> We can do it though. I truly believe before I take my last breath, we can get super close to having a lot more um, peace. And that's my goal. That's what I want to do. Jason's convinced that the future of storytelling is going to be more immersive, but also more ephemeral. He says that the next generation is going to have a better understanding of the permanence of the internet and is going to be more interested in what's called dark social, social media that you know doesn't leave a trace like Snapchat. But he also thinks that the virtual reality is almost inevitable and that's going to change the way we tell stories that change the world. People were informed and inspired by a short YouTube video about child soldiers. What would happen if a future technology could drop you into the middle of a camp full of them? Why do you think everyone's like on the brink of losing their minds? I feel that, you know? Me too. Uh, part of it is just being an artist. Well, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's that Alice in Wonderland idea. Right? right. Like I think a lot of artists, we all live off in Wonderland. That's how we dream this stuff up. Yeah. You got to like live my, on that edge. Yes. Yeah. I love that Chesterton notion of... Um, there's nothing that you can't imagine within the infinity of your mind. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I think that that's it. And I think that so many people limit themselves to like, this is how it is. And, yeah. and we're going to change that. And that best way to do that is by telling a better story, you know? 
So we have to, I mean, we have to lean into that place, right? Like right. We have to lean into that that craziness right. to get to that innovative place where we're yeah. telling great stories. So how do we live into it, lean into it without it taking us out? Mm-hmm. You know, my, my mind goes to different places. The first one is it's, it's okay if you break down. You know, I think that everyone's fearful for it to happen, and it happened to me in a very dramatic, naked street corner, TMZ, <laughs> 30 million views. Like, it was a game on. And it, what's fitting or paradoxical, I don't know, is that I had quoted Steve Jobs, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pigs and square holes, like that whole thing. Um, some see them as crazy, but we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. That is what I would say at every time I spoke for like the last 10 years. I would just say that because I love it so much. And then I became the crazy. It was like self-fulfilling in a way. I remember thinking like, wait, I'm I'm crazy? And then thinking, wait, I've always wanted to be crazy. But then (laughs) seeing the repercussions of like what that meant personally, career, and then how much it impacted and affected my friends and family who loved me so dearly. Like, that didn't sit in till months or years later. Like, wow, that, of course it really impacted you. But for those that who are feeling on the brink of that, you got to have a a rock. Like, my wife is my rock, and she'll just, like, straight up tell me, you need to pump the brakes. Um, but yet I can't, I can't rely on her her to like take all the baggage so I have to go to Charlie my therapist (laughs) just saw him last week it was really good um (laughs) gotta do what I what I gotta do what fills my cup up so I have to be like near or on the beach and reading that's just my go-to I have like I'll have five magazines and four books and just like I have to do that I have to read this poetry looking back were there any like flags or like little warning signs that you wish you would have listened to in yourself? Not necessarily other people going, hey, Jason. So the thing that Oprah said to me when she came to do the interview was she looked at me, and I don't think she said it for the cameras, but she said, I don't think any, I don't think any human being ex- has experienced exactly what you experienced in those 10 days. Because the internet's r- fairly new. Social media is 10 years old-ish. And so, yeah, it maybe happened to like Susan Boyle or like, or um, the Chewbacca mask or, um, you know, people who go viral. But this was different because it was so layered in terms of neocolonization, child soldiers, the US government it had to do with like branding and advertising and activism. I mean, there's like literally 30 things you could point sure. out where, I didn't realize it till like day five in New York. I woke up and I wrote down all the kind of industries that it might have disrupted Hollywood. Like, oh, this is how you make a movie now. You know, when the Weinsteins are calling you and saying, we're going to make this sure that this wins the Oscar. Like, that's what they were telling me. There's so much pressure, you know, on just one person. It felt like just one person because I became the face that what I'm trying to say is, I can't give great advice to people who are maybe feeling like on the edge of a breakdown because mine was so hyper-specific to my 
situation at that time, you know? I'm not saying I don't get anxious or I don't get stressed. I still do. And and that's when I have to be like, okay, I'm going to like actually turn on Headspace and meditate for 10 minutes, which I do. You know, those kind of ritual practices of like, what do I need to do right now? Because if my oxygen mask isn't on, then I'm going to be a horrible director to my team. I'm going to be a terrible husband and father. And that sounds super cliche, but being a creative and a storyteller, there's no, there's nothing else I'd rather do, you know? So it's one of those things like I have chosen this life and there are actual battle wounds that you will have. And that's a part of the journey. Like it is the Brene Brown, like in the ring, like, yeah. This is what you signed up for. My my best friend, John Chu, is an amazing storyteller, big Hollywood director, $200 million movies. He's done, you know, I don't know, 10 of them. And he still gets hurt when people criticize him on Twitter. You know, like when it comes out, hate you, you suck, you ruined this, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's and he, he now knows that's a part of the journey. Buckle up, you know, you want to do it? There's going to be comments. There's going to be breakdowns. There's going to be dysfunction, you know. I don't want to create an answer, you know, for like this is a, this is how a healthy artist works. Most, most artists aren't healthy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the most interesting ones aren't healthy. That's unfortunate, but I think that's what makes them great, you know. That's sucky as that sounds. I think that's what makes them tap into that uh, emotion and pain and you know when you when you hear Gaga singing a song or you listen to Adele you're like wow they've lived dude Adele when she sings that hello and when it came out a few years ago you felt the pain you're like damn and then she's like I wrote that song to myself and you're like that's for her. And then it even becomes more compelling. There's hurt there. There's heaviness there. So what am I saying? I don't know. I'm just kind of. I think you're going back right where we began. We're bookending it. You're saying create from that narcissistic place, write songs to yourself. Exactly. Make, make movies for yourself. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, until we have a really good VR experience, you only have your own point of view. And your own, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. I, th- I think that the designer creator infinite like storyteller made it that way like this will be cool i'll live like 80 years in this physical body and i'll be like branches to a tree or like waves in the ocean i'm all one like it's all me but i want all these billions of kinds of experiences through billions of years what'll that be like and then your head goes to like what's the point and the whole point is there's nothing more pleasurable than creating. And that's what the creator's doing. So enjoy the ride. It's all love in the end. We're all going to love. We're all going to justice. It's, it's beautiful where we're going. Be, be the hands and feet of the love. That's all. As soon as you can start turning into love, the more and more. That's the other thing I would say is just, I'm just starting to begin to practice the now the now way of living, the like day-to-day, the moment-by-moment. Time is an illusion, so but we're in it, so just be in the now. 
and be the best in the now that you can be. And it's going to lead you to that next most interesting thing. And then like eliminating all, all fear that you can, which I thought I got rid of at like 23. Because when we went to Sudan to document a genocide, I thought we were going to die. So I had to be okay with dying. And then once I was, I was free. And then uh, not knowing where my job would come from next, that created a lot of fear. And so I'm working on that, uh, erasing that, erasing that fear. Because then if you can erase fear, dude, you're so free. It feels amazing. And I know a few people who've done it, so I'm, I'm on that path. Because fear is finite. It actually is. You can kill it. And um, I think that's the singular most important thing you can do in your life, whether you're creative or not, is kill the fear. I have, like, so many questions I want to ask you about that. <laughs> that's, like, another whole can of worms that I want to open up. Um, yeah, we just... <laughs> We don't have time to talk about it. The, we, our, our theme this year at Story this past year was uh, Carnival of Curiosity, and it was about kind of that Liz Gilbert idea of curiosity being greater than fear mm. and how the creative process is less, like the corporate world is like punch fear in the face. And I think to be an artist is almost more of a dance with fear. Mm. And so you're kind of dancing with your insecurities and fear to make the things that are supposed to be made. And so rather than punch your fear in the face, I say grab it by the hand and make it a character in your story. Mm. And in storytelling, you know... Like become friends with it. Become friends with it, but don't let it run your life, right? Like Mm. put it in the co-pilot seat or the back seat. Don't let it drive. Be the driver. Yeah. Um, And monsters play this really magical role in storytelling, right? Like the story isn't really all that compelling without a monster. Totally. So that means fear must play because monsters embody all of our fears so that must mean that fear plays a really compelling role in all of our stories hmm. so if monsters are magical and fear is magical if you can't create because there's a monster under your bed or in your closet the thing that makes little kids discover how magical that monster is is their curiosity they're curious enough to lean over the edge of bed and look hmm. um, and then they discover the magical role that it plays it doesn't mean it's not scary it yeah. just means it's also magical so we kind of had conversations about that, but I've never had someone look me in the eyes and say that fear is finite and that mm. you can kill it. Mm-hmm. And that's really intriguing. I mean, I got that from my friend Shervin, who was talking about, and I'm going to botch the story, but he was basically in the Middle East. Um, he, and he, because he's, he's from there, and he he's like a tech venture capitalist, um, but he said this mom lost one son and then two and then three. And then she like picked up a rock to fight, you know, the enemy and her enemy. And she looked him in the eyes and basically said, fear is finite. It's taken everything. I have nothing to fear. Like I'm free. And that stuck with me because I think fear is also very momentary and it's also very mental, psychological, like it's all there. And so I agree with the unpacking of it. Like, why am I so fearful that if I put myself out there again, people are going to hate me? Wait, they are going to hate me. Okay. Am I okay with that? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Will it hurt? Yeah, it's going to hurt. What if we go on this trip and we end up running out of money and we're just stuck somewhere? What will that be like? That'll suck. That'll hurt. (laughs) but I'll be breathing oxygen, like going all the way deep down at the core of fear is really our fear of death. Like that's like the, like the, the summit is like death. And so if you're okay with dying and being like, I'm good, 
then everything else kind of feels like, well, let's just take it from fear down to a concern or put it on like a notepad, you know, like make sure you have enough money for gas. Okay, let's work on that. <laughs> you know, because I, I think for me re recently, it's just been the fear has kind of been a tsunami in terms of like me bringing myself, my mom, my wife, my kids like out into more of a public place that can really jack you up psychologically. Like, is that, is, am I bad as a dad? Like, and then the fear of like, yeah, just starting over. I think, I mean, I think you're right. Every artist has to like deal with that fear, but Elizabeth Gilbert's right. Make friends with it. Maybe that's a better way to say it because if you're friends with anything, then you're not actually afraid of it. It's gone because it's your friend. Interesting. You I know? think she would just say, let your curiosity be greater than your fear. Yeah, that, like switch that drives it. you to action because fear can keep you from taking action. But the curiosity of, yeah, I'm scared, but what if? And maybe yeah. it drives you to push past it. And I love that. Yeah. No, I'm totally down with that. And I speak in hyperbole, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably just speaking to myself. Like, <clears throat> don't be afraid. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Was there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about or that you would want to say? I mean, you've got a mic connected to thousands of storytellers who are all basically in the same place that you were 10 years ago who are going, gosh, I just, I care about this thing and why doesn't anyone else care about it? And it doesn't mean they're all working for nonprofits. Some of them have a new product or an invention they believe in. And yeah. They've stumbled across the story podcast because they read a branding book that talked about how important storytelling is. But most of them care about something. They they have this thing that they believe in and they want to get the word out and they're, they're going, how do I tell people about this? And so what what would you say to them? I would just say you are more powerful than you think you are. That's what I would say. Most people don't know that and no one's told them that. Like you are more powerful than you think you are. And that that is going to liberate you to keep going and creating and jump first, fear later or fear never. Just do it, you know. I have to tell myself that too and oh we're not ready to put the website up oh we're not ready to and it's just like keep pushing that out you know yeah I mean I think in closing what I've been realizing and believing is true is at the end of the day when we do take our last breath what you've created will be fascinating and interesting and compelling and maybe remembered maybe not maybe you'll have a legacy maybe you won't but the one that will be the most potent is your actual existence, your actual life. That's what people will want to know most about and read about and kind of be like, did you know that she was actually like this in real life? And that has been just interesting to me because when you think about be the change you want to see in the world, then you actually have to do it not just talk about it, not just like, you know, put it in the book or in the podcast episode or in the movie or song. Your life is actually the most interesting thing that anyone will remember in the end. And so write that story well, write that one well. Because I think as artists, we can confuse that um, with our creations and not to put the pressure on because I'm jacked up and 
have done a bunch of stuff that, you know, I don't necessarily want people to know, but it kind of, it reminds you, like your story, you, when we say that your story matters and all those like things you hear at conferences, it's like, we're talking about you. <laughs> tr- truth is stranger than fiction, right? <laughs> exactly. What will be the most potent is your actual existence, your life. I really don't know that I need to say much more than that. If you want to follow along with what Jason and his family are up to these days, head over to a littleradical.com. That's a littleradical.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening, sharing, and rating this podcast. I can't tell you guys how much that means to us. We pour so much work into bringing you amazing episodes and conversations. We do this without running and filling up the episodes with ads or you know, promoting other things that we're trying to sell you. It just means a lot um, when you guys show appreciation back. Thank you so much to you who have done that. Um, really means a lot that you, when we see you guys share these things. I know that these conversations are helpful to me, so I hope that they impact you and your work as well. And remember, if you haven't registered yet, Story 2018 prices are going up on August 10th. That is coming up so quickly, August 10th. Do not miss out on the opportunity to learn from people who have worked with companies like Nike, Disney, Marvel, Target, gosh, there's so many others. I I promise that these two days will change your work and potentially even your life. You'll find everything that you need to know at story2018.com. I cannot wait to see you there.